Hi, this is Ethan Song, Duke Plastic Surgery Resident with the Resident Review of Plastic Surgery Podcast. Today, we will be continuing our leadership series with our very own Dr. Brown. Dr. David Brown is a board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeon with interest in lower extremity reconstruction, back reconstruction, and peripheral nerve surgery. He is currently an assistant professor in the Division of Plastic, Maxillofacial, and Oral Surgery at Duke University, as well as the co-director of the Duke Regeneration Center. As a surgeon scientist, Dr. Brown is the principal investigator in multiple ongoing studies and leads a lab exploring the biology of tissue regeneration with the intent of developing new therapies for wound healing and limb preservation using zebrafish and mouse models. Dr. Brown received his PhD at the University of California, Los Angeles in biomedical engineering and his medical training at the University of California, Irvine. He then completed his general surgery residency at the University of Washington in plastic surgery training at Duke. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Brown. Thanks for having me. Really excited to get this going. And, you know, I think one of the exciting parts is you have a very, very unique role as a plastic surgeon, but also as a surgeon scientist. Um, and the path I think is even more fascinating because originally you were being trained in aerospace and aeronautical engineering in college, and now you're sort of shifted gears a little bit more. Can you tell us more about that journey from college to now and what drew you to plastic surgery and research and tissue regeneration? Yeah, definitely. It, 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 has, been, it has been a journey indeed. I, I, I like to joke that I went the long way you know, in, in, in many endeavors, but in life in general. Um, but yeah, I, I studied engineering in college, you know, and um, I often tell people that that was like the, the best fit for me because I didn't have to write papers. You know, we would just do problem sets all day long. And that was great for my sort of analytical mind. I think I would have failed out of college if I'd done a history degree or something and mm-hmm. had to write a bunch of papers. But yeah, I liked engineering and I, um, <clears throat> I got exposed to, um, uh, the biological side of engineering in my my last couple of years. So there was um, uh, an emphasis, an upper level emphasis at University of Colorado in aerospace engineering where you could study um, spaceflight biotechnology and bioengineering. So um, we learned about human physiology and spaceflight and um, some of the other stuff. And I, I really got into the the biological side of things. And so after grad school or after undergraduate, I did some traveling over in Asia and I decided I wanted to do something with more of like a human emphasis. So I applied to grad schools in biomedical engineering and I got there initially just, just, you know, intending to pursue the masters, but I got hooked up with a research lab in tissue engineering and loved it. And my my mentors there were um, some MD PhDs and a, a dentist PhD. And I saw what those guys were doing and it was just all over. I mean, I got, I, I got bit by the bug. So from that, then I, then I went through sort of a, you know, a, a transition phase where I wasn't sure I wanted to do a PhD or, you know, move on to med school. And I thought, gosh, I, I like both. And, you know, I, I see all these people making a dual career out of it. So that's what I'm going to do. So I, yeah, I went to med school, like specifically, you know, focused on becoming a surgeon scientist and that dream really never died off. It was just a question of which type of surgical specialty. Yeah. Wow. That's very fascinating because it sounds like you spent some time in Asia, which I actually didn't know about. And then you were working with a 
dentist PhD. So, you know, all those different things added to your experience of wanting to become a surgeon scientist. Can you tell me more about like your time in Asia and how that influenced your decision-making to go into biomedical engineering? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, tra traveling in general has always been a huge part of my life. I mean, I grew up, parents owned a travel agency for a while. My dad was a United pilot. So I traveled a ton growing up. And then when I got in my 20s, I just, I went on sort of like full bore travel mode and anytime I could. And and that was really helped by the fact that in the 90s, uh, dependents or children of United pilots could get free passes on the airlines. So, I mean, I abused those in every manner I could. I mean, I, you know, I would go to Paris for the weekend. I went to Australia for a week once. So I've, I've actually been to over 50 countries and I've, um, I've spent about two years of my life outside the country and a big chunk of that was in Asia. Um, that was, um, that was teaching English actually for fourth and fifth grades in, in a province in China. So I was there for, uh, I think it was in China for five or six months and then, I, I picked up my backpack and went to Tibet and Nepal for two months. And um, I, you know, I had an, I, I've always had an interest in mountaineering and just seeing the Himalayas was, you know, a big priority in getting over there. And that was, that was definitely world changing for me, you know, in a lot of different ways. Yeah, that's really exciting. It sounds like not only do you have like the intellectual curiosity to explore, but also just the global perspective. And I'm sure that has really informed the way you think about the world, the way you approach your research. And I definitely want to take a deeper dive into some of that as well. Yeah. Um, did you know, like, you wanted to lead a lab? It sounded like you wanted to be a surgeon scientist. Yeah. Um, so up to this point, um, did you have any leadership experience beforehand to, like, get you prepped for what you're doing right now? You know, uh, I mean, I did I did some, like, leadership courses in, in high school, and I did, like, um, the Boy Scouts and, you know, leadership roles like that. But you never really, you never really truly learn leadership until you're thrust into those positions. And, you know, even now I'm, I'm in different, you know, leadership roles. And um, the, I think the line between administrative work and leadership is, is kind of blurred sometimes, but, you know, and maybe this doesn't specifically pertain to your question, but I found that, you know, you never really truly learn leadership skills until you're trying to lead your peers and your colleagues. Mm -hmm. You know, because you, th there's, there's lots of times in my life when, um, I'm, I'm like very clearly, uh, the superior to someone, you know, like I'm, I'm the attending and there's the resident or I'm the PI of the lab. And then there's the graduate student. But when you're in a situation where you're, you're trying to, you know, you're, you're trying to get your peers, your colleagues to do something that's, that's requires the highest level of leadership skills that. I've had to muster. I think, um, you know, since I was in graduate school and part of a lab, I've always seen myself as leading a lab. Um, and mm -hmm. along the way, I've seen a lot of, I've had a lot of role models in that regard. And you mentioned a very interesting point, the difference between administration and leadership. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Yeah. I mean, um, leadership, I mean, in, in a very real sense is trying to encourage people to um, follow a common goal or, or move towards a common goal. And a lot of the leadership positions that I've taken up are, are really uh, just derived from the fact that I'm trying to get big projects done. Um, but administrative work, you know, so we sometimes call leadership. I mean, that's, you know, you're on committees, you're, you're doing other stuff. And um, it's not necessarily leadership as in you're, you're trying to, you know, get people to, to do something, but rather you're, um, you're just trying to, to tackle projects. Um, but again, that, that, that line is a little blurry um, sometimes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And you had mentioned the significance of leadership as it pertains to peers, as opposed to like this top down. And um, I had explored this idea of like horizontal leadership before as well, where even though there may be a hierarchy, you still want to be able to see people at different levels at the same level. Um, do you feel like that applies within your lab and trying to get people to follow that vision that you've developed? Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, it, it goes without saying that, you know, you want to treat everyone with, with dignity and respect, you know, regardless of their level. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a different tact and it's a different approach when, um, you know, I'm, I'm asking my medical students to do a favor for me and when I'm asking my partners to do a favor for me, you know, <laughs> right, right. it's just, it's that, that's the way it goes. And um, when you, when you are in a position where you're, you know, you're tasked with even, you know, disciplining your, your peers or, um, you know, colleagues, I mean, that's, that can be a very difficult social challenge. And that's, I feel like that's what's tested my leadership capacity the most. Were there specific moments where you've had to have like these crucial conversations or try to manage conflicts between people who didn't really see eye to eye within your lab or maybe like a superior? And could you give an example of that and how you navigated that? Um, you know, not so much in the lab, actually. Um, okay. I, I haven't, I haven't had to break up too many fights in the lab, which is good, you know, because a, a lot of times people are, are very invested in their own project and mm -hmm. you, know, you don't have um, a lot of those difficult social interactions. It's, it's actually much more common on the clinical side. And yeah, there, there have been, there have been situations where I've had to intervene and, you know, just people not treating others with respect and have to do this sort of cup of coffee with them and, yeah. And it's, there's, there's different strategies for approaching that. I mean, it's uh, one of the things I think about in those situations is when to take a mission oriented approach and when to take a people oriented approach. Mm -hmm. because sometimes you have to just sort of fall back on the mission and say, you know, I, I'm sorry, this is happening, but we have to get this done, you know, in, in surgery. I'm, 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 I'm sorry that you're, you're scared of this bleeding, but we have to get it stopped, you know, right. but times you take a people or an approach that says, okay, we can step back. Let's explore what you're going through. Let's, let's talk about this. And it just, it just depends on the situation. But I think more and more, you know, I'm, I'm falling to a, a people focused approach when it's, when it's appropriate. And a lot of times I think that's an effective in resolving conflicts to say like, you know, I, I understand why you said this, but we're all here to get this done, to, you know, um, have a productive clinic or, you know, have an effective, do an effective operation. And, you know, I, I need you to sort of step into this role to do that. Mm -hmm. So like realigning with the same goal. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. That, that, that sounds, um, like one of the more, I think, socially aware strategies, we have to understand the situation, understand the person. And I feel like sometimes it can be very challenging in a high stakes situation and being able to navigate it. So definitely, I think person uh, oriented uh, can be very effective. Yeah. And you, you mentioned uh, crucial conversations. I don't, I don't know if you've read that book, but um, I'm, I'm currently reading it for um, a course I'm doing with the ASPS. It's called Essentials of Leadership. And we're, we're taking a deep dive through there. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I've definitely read it. It was part of my medical training. Yeah. And I think Dr. Lori is a big fan of that book too. So as part of our soft skills curriculum, it's great that that um, you're also able to like really take a deep dive into it, and you know that share pool of shared meaning. Yeah, is something that I took away. So mm -hmm. uh, no, that's fantastic. Um, you, you had talked about also just 
as a, as a surgeon scientist, you know, having to develop a vision and realigning people to that vision, you know, what do you find are some of the unique challenges of, of being a leader in that situation where, especially within basic science, there's so much that's unknown, you know, how, how can you develop that vision for, for your team? Well, the, the unknown is the fun part of it. You know, I mean, that's, that's a lot of times that's what draws people in, as you say, you know, and, and I feel like, you know, every, everyone thinks their research is interesting, but I'd like to think objectively mine is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean, I, I study, I study complex tissue regeneration, right? I mean, I, I, I look at why organisms like zebrafish can regenerate their hearts and their spinal cords or salamanders can regenerate their limbs. And, and that's just fascinating from a biological perspective, you know? And so I, I think the questions alone draw a lot of people in and just, just the, the wonder of it all. You know, there's, there's a lot of logistical challenges, as, as you know, you know, to doing research. Mm -hmm. and, um, but I think, I think now more than ever, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of thought going into uh, how can we make the lab life good for people? You know, how can we make this a sustainable career? How can we support people in doing this kind of research? Because it is important not just to do the research, but to have surgeons involved in the research. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think things are, are ever improving in that regard. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you, you actually play a very unique role as one of the few plastic surgeons in the nation that serves as a surgeon scientist. Um, so what do you think are the, are, is the role of the plastic surgeon in that specific um, space? And then what special perspectives do you think a plastic surgeon can bring to that field of research? Obviously, your, your interests are very unique, and I find them uh, fascinating, as, as shown by your previous research day presentations and, you know, just being able to effectively regenerate a limb is the epitome of wound healing, right? So um, yeah. I was very captivated by that. But, you know, what, what do you think is the role of the plastic surgeon as a surgeon scientist? Well, first of all, I think, you know, plastic surgery is, um, I mean, a nearly ideal field for being a surgeon scientist. And it's, it's one of the reasons that I, I chose plastic surgery as a career path. And the reason for that is because plastic surgeons tend to be fairly creative people. You know, our job requires creativity, and and I think we we foster creativity um, um, among each other. You know, and most of that takes place in in choosing reconstructive methods, right? I mean, we mm -hmm. have our patients conference, and we figure out what are the best techniques to reconstruct a wound. But also, just because uh, the specialty itself is is mostly daytime work, right? Mm -hmm. I mean the hand surgeons may disagree with me, but uh, you know, in, in general plastics, for sure. I mean, you, you do most of your work during the day and you're not really taxed with a, a big call burden at night. And that's, that's in contrast to a lot of surgical specialties. So I, I wanted to have that um, just so I could be as productive as possible during the day and not be, you know, dragging the night after um, or the day after a big call night or something. So um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a great specialty to be a surgeon scientist and plastic surgery also uh, as you know, you know, touches on so many different aspects of, of the human condition and human physiology. And it's not just, you know, we're not just skin deep as they say. And I mean, I'm doing research in bone regeneration and limbs and nerves and all that, and totally comfortable in that space. So I think, um, you know, it's, it's also a specialty where there's a lot of leeway in terms of what you can decide to do research in and still have a lot of interest among your plastic surgery peers. Um, for instance, limb regeneration, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to regenerate a limb? I mean, that <laughs> could help a lot of specialties, including plastic surgery. Right. So. Absolutely. I'm thinking directly to my days back in vascular surgery during my rotation where 
a lot of patients end up getting amputations and then you're talking about TMR, but then if you could regenerate a leg, then, well, that's, that would be incredible, right? To, to yeah. be able to not have to wear a prosthetic or not even have to um, talk about, you know, all the complications. So yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's really like, I mean, you know, I tell people my research is in limb regeneration, but um, realistically it's, it's not focused on regenerating a complete human limb. I mean, Right. Maybe my grandchildren will figure that out. But, you know, right now, I mean, even studying the component process of, of it all, um, you know, how um, limbs and even even digits, you know, in mammals will regenerate with de novo bone extension. They don't have to have it doesn't have to have a um, like a scaffold and like fracture repair does. And it, it heals scarlessly like the, the skin and soft tissue around it. There's mm -hmm. to no scar. And so even just figuring out how that would have that happens, you know, would be huge. Um, and that's that's well short of regenerating a whole limb. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're definitely pushing the envelope and getting the ball rolling with these types of grand endeavors. So definitely kudos for, for that. Um, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about just the, the nature of research, basic science research. You know, there's a lot of ups and downs. And I, I've personally worked in a basic science lab starting in high school all the way through the end of college. And I spent a lot of like sleepless nights in a lab, running Western blots or doing PCR. And um, there was a lot of, you know, dead ends, but also a lot of moments of like discovery. Yeah. So as a PI, how do you handle these like peaks and valleys of research personally? And then how do you guide your own team's efforts and morale through these peaks and valleys? Yeah. Um, that's, that's a, that's a really good and complex question. I mean, and I'm still figuring all that out. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not, you know, a, an expert in, in any of this, but, um, I've, I've found that good research, like good writing takes time. You know, you can't, you can't expect to produce real results in a short period of time in weeks or even months. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to get yourself in that environment and surround yourself with the resources and invest in a lot of deep thought, you know, um, in, into what you're doing. And eventually the positive results will come. And I've, I've been there many times. I mean, where you're, you're just, you're grinding and grinding and mm -hmm. it's just, you know, negative result after negative result. But again, if you, if you surround yourself with the right people, with the right resources, with the right mentors, with the right direction, mm -hmm. you're going to get something eventually <clears throat> it's going to take, you know, and that's, that's, that's this. I mean, if, I think if you talk to a lot of um, PIs who have been doing this for, 20, 30, 40 years, they'll, they'll tell you the same story that most, most trainees come into the lab and they spin their wheels for a while and it can be years. It can be a couple of years and then they'll, they'll hit something, right? They'll, they'll strike gold and then you've got something, you've got your, your little nugget and you can, you can spend the rest of your time sort of developing that story. And, um, yeah, it takes, it takes time though. That's the thing. I mean, that the, the kind of exploratory work I do lends itself to, um, that, that kind of, that kind of rollout and timetable. I, I think, um, research in other fields is, is probably a much more compressed, um, timetable. Mm -hmm. um, the kind of work we're doing d does take that, that kind of time. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you, uh, you, you talked about uh, a couple of times about like the role of mentorship and having good mentors to help guide you, especially with coming up with questions or getting yourself on the path towards discovery. Um, can you share a little bit about your own mentorship experience? I know you're, you know, a mentor to a lot of medical students, but then, you know, you also are being mentored in that process of discovery as well. Um, what, what is that like for you? 
Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I could, I could speak for hours, you know, on my mentors and how much, how, how much they mean to me and how much they've done for me. I mean, mm-hmm. um, at Duke, I'm, I'm surrounded by um, people that I respect more than, you know, as, as much or more than any as I've ever met. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll name names and, you know, my, my science mentor is Ken Poss and he's, he's a world-class uh, biologist and leader in the field of regeneration. And even going through grad school and my other research experiences, I, I had other mentors, but Ken has, has really shown me how to, how to assume the role of the PI and lead and direct research and um, all the strategy that, that comes with that. And I am enormously grateful. And I would encourage anyone who's, who's in my, um, you know, in my role, a junior faculty trying to cut out a research plan, especially mm-hmm. someone doing a KO8, to find a high-powered mentor like that because you really do learn all the, the tricks of the trade, or, or at least I'm trying to. Um, and then on the clinical side, you know, I've got, I've got Jeff Marcus and Alan Kirk, and both of them um, fulfill um, sort of unique roles in my, my mentorship plan. You know, Dr. Kirk is, is, is just the consummate surgeon scientist. I mean, he, he lives it, he breathes it, he, he celebrates it. And, um, there's just unending support for what I do from him. And it it would be really hard to, to, to do what I'm doing in the lab without that kind of support, you know, Jeff Marcus as well, in terms of he's, he's not a surgeon scientist, you know, as, as much as Dr. Kirk is, but, um, Dr. Marcus is, um, as, as much of a human leader as, as I've ever met. And, you know, when, when I'm in tough positions, you know, like, like we talked about some of those, those strained positions in the lab and crucial conversations, you know, WW, J, 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 R, M, D. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it sounds like these people, these mentors have progressed in this relationship to go from mentorship to even like sponsorship. This is something that I came across recently where mentorship is, you know, offering advice, but sponsorship is going to bat for you, you know, putting their sort of political, uh, if you may, clout to help advance your position as, as like a, as a mentee or as someone that they're willing to bring up. How, how have you felt that you've been able to jump from like, like sort of a mentee role to being someone who's like sponsored? What, what do you think are the strategies or things to take into account to get to that next level where someone is going to bat for you as opposed to just giving you advice? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know. I, uh, I, I haven't thought about that question, at least, at least, you know, in that, in the way you asked it before, but I mean, I feel like the only reason I'm here is because people have gone to bat for me, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I got so many lucky breaks along the way just because yeah. people, people saw promise in me. And, um, I, I feel like, um, that is something that, that I want to do and I have to do for anyone who, who is, is my mentee. And, um, that's a really, um, essential part of, of, I think the mentorship relationship is that when you take on someone as a mentor, it's not just, yeah, as a mentee rather, um, it's not just giving them advice. You know, you have to, you have to show them the ropes. You have to introduce them around. You have to write them recommendation letters. I mean, um, and this, this is what establishes a, a long-term, I mean, that, that emotional bond between a mentor and a mentee, you know, it's, it's not just saying, go read this book, go read this paper. It's, it's like, 
you know, I'm going to help you. I'm, I'm going to perspirate and I'm going to try to get you to the next level. I'm going to make phone calls. I'm going to knock on doors. Like I've got your back in this yeah. because that's, that's a sentiment that I've felt so many times in my career. Mm-hmm. And I feel strongly that, that I want to do that for my mentees. Yeah. It's great that you have that feeling to pay it forward and to, to go to bat for, for your students uh, as you've already done many, many times before. Yeah. Um, I'm paying back. I mean, at this point, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, um, and, and I think it's a great thing to be in that position to be able to pay it forward to help the next generation or you know the next level of um, incoming incoming you know leaders in the field. So I think that's a, a very beautiful you know progress or a process. Yeah, um, it's the way it should be. Honestly. Yeah, absolutely. And um, going back to some of this uh, academic uh, research-related um, topics, um, one of the challenges that I found with research in general was that government funding has decreased over the years, and there's always talks about, oh, you know, yeah. when am I going to get like my next grant? How am I going to strategize um, on on writing it? You know, where am I going to get money? And I feel like as a PI, those are probably the things that you're thinking a lot about. You know, who. Who do I go to for this? How do I get this? Do you feel like this shift has like affected your own research endeavors? And what do you find are like the opportunities and challenges within this space? Yeah, you know, grant grant writing, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this and I'm trying to organize them into something coherent here. But um, I think grant writing, first of all, is, is not as bad as people make it out to be. And um, it, at least for me, it hasn't been. And by, by the time I'm, I'm laying down some ideas in a grant application, they're, they're usually pretty mature ideas. You know, I've thought about them for a while. I'm excited to try and sell the story mm-hmm. and it's not a painful process at all. I mean, I, I get inspired throughout the day and I run to my computer. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to throw this into the experiment. Um, but yeah, when I, I think when I first started doing this five or six years ago, I thought I just got to get grants, right? If I get grants, everything mm-hmm. else will fall into place. And I'm just going to like, shotgun all these different foundations and organizations and try and get grants. But it, it turns out grants is only a, a part of the overall recipe for success. You know, the the other part is is producing the scientific results, which is often the hardest part. Right. And the third part is um, having the right team, you know, and, and getting getting good people into the lab with you. So those are the three sort of, you know, elements that I'm always thinking about, you know, the, the grants, the people, and the science and mm-hmm. all of them sort of feed into one another right because if you get if you get grants and you have money then you can you can attract you know higher level postdocs or technicians if you're producing high level papers you can attract those people too then you get more grants and so it's sort of this cycle but it, once once i got my 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 koa award which is you know the um the one that um, protects me to do 75% research. The, the task really for the last few years has been producing the scientific results. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is the major challenge at this point. And I think I'll, I'll, I'll be challenged by the grants, you know, in, in the future, maybe the near future to just get more money. But right now I have the money I need and, um, we're just, we're just, you know, trying to explore a couple, um, key concepts in regeneration and get papers out. And, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. It probably swings back and forth over the course of the career. You know, sometimes the money's up, sometimes the the science is up, sometimes the the people are down or people are up, and yeah, uh, that's that's sort of the uh, you know that's how the tires spin in research. Gotcha, gotcha. You you had 
touch upon two different things that I think are very fascinating. I want to do a little bit more digging in. One of yeah. them is, you know, how do you sell the story when you're writing the grant? Yeah. And I feel like that requires a lot of awareness, like knowing your audience. Yeah. So, um, what what type of strategies do you have to um, be able to sell your story successfully when you're writing grants to different institutions? What would you like give advice for someone who's trying to write their own grant? You know, um, so uh, first of all, there there is a language that that we speak in science and, and especially in grant writing. You know, and experienced um, members of study sections or reviewers, the people who are reviewing your grants, all speak that language, and they're they're looking for certain elements of a grant. They're looking for a certain writing style. Um, there are definitely red flag phrases. Um, there are things to include and not to include. And um, but it is it is like a, a very discreet, concise um, playbook on how to write a grant. I mean, and it's one of the one of the one of the tasks of your first two years as a certain scientist is to learn that playbook. You mm -hmm. know, um, learn what to say in a grant, what not to say, how to format it, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think. I think selling in a grant application is, is mostly a matter of just um, communicating good science, you know, because I mean, these are, these are not people who you can sway with like, you know, beautiful prose. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, they they want to, it's show me the data, right. And, yeah. and, and show me the good ideas. I mean, that's what they're looking for. Um, so I, I think, I think when I write grants, you know, um, I'm just trying to come up with the, the highest level scientific ideas I can and and put forth the highest level preliminary data i can as well and i think that um that that's the kind of stuff that that resonates on study sections and and we'll pull the funding but um again i, I can't you know I, I can't speak with too much credibility in this in this field i mean talk to me in like 20 or 30 years and if i'm still an nih funded researcher then i'll gotcha gotcha yeah we'll uh, we'll make another episode and we'll yeah. just do like a before and after Dr. Brown's going to be, you know, chair of this research institution. And then we can, you know, get a deeper dive into that. Um, another, another thing you had talked about was building the right team. And I think one of the big things within at least my training as a resident is teamwork and being able to communicate and having the right people. So yeah. on your side, as a surgeon scientist, where you have, you know, your team of um, researchers, you know, how do you find the right people like what what are the things that you're looking for and you know overall culturize what what type of um environment are you trying to provide for these uh, team members yeah I, I think you know i think the kind of people you attract as a researcher um will, will probably change um it'll change over the course of my career um right now as junior faculty um you know the, the people i've been able to recruit to the lab are medical students and um, I've been extremely lucky with the medical students I've I've had. I mean, very hardworking, talented, driven people, and you know that. And I've I've had great experience with them. Hopefully, they can say the same. But uh, yeah, be, because of Duke's curriculum, you know, they have they have their third year off, and so um, there there have been some who have wanted to go into plastic surgery, even other fields that have um, that have come to me, and and we've done projects together. So um, that's been amazing, and. Um, the only detriment to that is that they only stay for, you know, a year or a year and a half. And mm -hmm. the eventually, you know, it, for again, going back to this, the kind of exploratory work I do, um, it really lends itself to more long-term projects, you know, four or five, six years. And, and that's, that's, um, that's what a PhD student or a postdoc uh, would, would stay for. So I think eventually um, my, my research will have to move to having mostly those type of people, you know, the, the longer term people. 
in order to accomplish the, the type of science that we're doing. Um, I haven't seen a model out there where, you know, the, the relatively short, um, the short stays and quick transitions is, is super effective in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, to, you know, uh, most of the time to publish a, a big story or a big paper, it, it takes many years. And, and especially having one person drive that is, is, is how, how this side of science runs for sure. Sure. Yeah. It sounds like continuity is very important. Yeah. And I can imagine just getting to train someone to get up to speed takes a lot of time and resources. And then yeah. to have them leave within another like six months or so, yeah. uh, can be tough, can be tough. Yeah. So, um, I can totally understand, you know, where you're coming from for that. And then <clears throat> one thing also, um, about the, the leadership thing that I find very fascinating, just based on my conversations with you is the one being able to not only lead a team, but to also lead yourself. You know, there's a lot of things I would imagine you have to do on a, on a daily checklist within the lab, within your clinical work, and then outside of clinical work. You know, how do you balance all of that? Um, how do you approach the task of tackling this behemoth list? And how do you choose to prioritize your time? Yeah, I, man, I am a work in progress. I'll say that. Like, I, I have not figured that out completely. I mean... Um, I, I think I think with with academics in general and taking on big projects, you know, you, you got to be good at meeting long term productivity goals. Long term, as in like not weekly or monthly, but like even yearly. And I, I think I think a lot about that, you know, in terms of where am I and have have I have I met these milestones? And, and you're right, it is leading yourself because a lot of times, you know, I have mentors that will check in with me and say, "How's the science going?" But really, in my mind, I have the master timeline for for um, you know, not only how our research is going, but my career as well. You know, am I, am I on track to uh, accomplish the things I've wanted to do in the first five years of being on faculty? You know, will I will I be there in in ten years where I want to be? So yeah, I think I think uh, checklists are a part of it. You know, and um, there's there's lots of of complex ways to do that. Um, you know, different software programs and apps and all that. And I've I've dabbled in that, and I, I don't know if this is what you're asking about. You know, sort of pragmatic ways to, to do all this, but, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it comes down to me, um, mostly to use my calendar, my email inbox and a bunch of post-it notes. <laughs> bunch of post-it notes. Gotcha. Gotcha. The, the traditional way. I know there's a lot of books out there on like productivity and, yeah. you know, checklists. I remember, um, I think there was a seven effective habits of, or seven habits of highly effective people. They were talking about like tiering things, like, you know, what is important, what is urgent, and then doing like a grid and trying to figure out where, what fits into. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's always an interesting question of, you know, how can I get the most of my time, especially uh, for someone who has so much to do and wants to get so much done. Yeah. The one, the one trick I have taken away from, um, I, I think it's the, uh, the GTD method to getting mm-hmm. things done. And this, this was, yeah. Have you heard of this? I, I think I have, um, but uh, yeah. What, what a, uh, well, so I think this 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 was a book um, published in the '90s, and this was before um, it was. I think it was before even the email era, you know, like in in the mid '90s. And um, it was just it, it it probably went way into way more detail than than I am going to give it credit for. But um, what I remember from it is just the idea of filing things away into just a couple different categories. And um, if there's a task that comes to you usually by email these days that you can get done within two minutes, right? 120 seconds. Uh-huh. You do it on the spot. 
Interesting. Yeah. If, if it can't be done within two minutes, then it's okay to delay it. Mm-hmm. And it evolves from there. But I still, I still use and like that two minute rule. You know, if, if I get, if I get an, if I'm walking, you know, and I've got a five minute walk and an email comes in that I know I can respond to while I'm walking, then mm-hmm. I force myself to do it because mm-hmm. I'm like, I'll just take care of it. And, um, a, a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of the, uh, the strategy I have revolves around just turning things over quickly, you know, I mean, because it's a never ending flow of tasks that, that come in, you know, mostly by email, but if you can process that, right. If you can turn it over, if you can hit that, if you can reply, even if it's not a complete reply, you just get it back in the other person's court. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that, that's been a strategy I use a lot. That's very interesting. I think I'm gonna have to pick that up because, as a resident, there's so many times where I just don't check my email or things just get pushed in to the bottom of my inbox. And then, you know, next thing you know, there's like a deadline. You're know, like, oh my goodness. You know, if it's you know not on my mind that I'm not going to, you know, if I don't see it, I'm not going to think about it. So the, the two minute thing, definitely. And I feel like that can apply to just things around the house or just smaller errands. Right, right. Well, yeah, yeah. Like if, if, you, if something's, if your desk is messy, you're like, I'd take me 30 seconds to clean that up. All right, I'm good. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, that's, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to copy your, your strategy and, okay. and incorporate that. Yeah. So I think also another fascinating thing about your story is that because you're junior faculty, you're also exploring the avenues of leadership. You know, you're developing your skills as a leader. And you said that you're taking a course on, on yeah. uh, leadership within plastic surgery. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what your experience yeah. has been so far? Yeah, it's 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 offered by the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, and it's called Essentials of Leadership. And this has been around. This course has been around in one form or another for, I think, at least twenty years. Um, like Dr. Patel took it mm-hmm. uh, 10 or fifteen years ago, but it's it, it used to be four in-person meetings. Then you know during COVID, it went to four virtual, and now it's half and half. So it's two in-person, two virtual meetings, and the course is based on Crucial Conversations, that book. And gotcha. It's great because they, um, you know, most, most of the people in the course, I think there's, there's like 30 or 40 of us are, are, are kind of, you know, my level, like assistant professor, junior faculty. Most of us are from academic institutions, but not all. I mean, there are some people in private practice who, who just want to develop their leadership skills, who maybe are looking to oversee um, a practice or multiple practice locations. And mm-hmm. it's awesome. It's, 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 it's a lot of soft skills. It's a lot of like, we did the the DISC method. And, and I don't know if you've run into that before, but what what is that? What is DISC? It's like analyzing personality traits, you know? And, um, I mean, it's, it's like, like many, you know, things it's, it's kind of an oversimplification of human behavior, but, Mm -hmm. um, if, you know, you can kind of compartmentalize people into, Oh, you're, you're a, um, I I even forget you're a not introspective, but, um, dominant or whatever. And if you can, uh, you know, kind of categorize people into that, then um, the idea is you can um, d- devise more effective strategies to work with them. Gotcha. Gotcha. So understanding the person again, right. Yeah. Based yeah. on you know managing relationships. I see. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I I'm familiar with like the Myers-Briggs. Yeah. Yeah. It's something like that I've taken, but something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so similar. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really, really interesting that. So how long is this course and is it like a longitudinal thing? You guys meet up at certain points in time. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it, it goes from, uh, January to September. So, yeah. uh, and there's, there's two in-person meetings. We just had our first in-person in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and then we've got another one this summer at Stanford. Um, yeah. but it's great. I would I would recommend it to any, 
junior faculty, you know, re regardless of your, if you're involved in leadership positions or not, it's just mm -hmm. a, a way to have a way to have thoughtful conversations with people. Definitely. Definitely. And what do you find, you know, now that you've been involved in the course and also have had several leadership roles already, what do you find to be some of the more important qualities of a leader? Oh man, that's uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be able to come up with a, a novel answer for that. I mean, all, all the standard ones apply, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. someone who's um, someone who's driven, someone who can understand and read people. Um, you know, I think I've, I've learned so much from um, just being under the leadership of, of my role models. Mm -hmm. And I'll, you know, I'll relate back to Dr. Marcus again. And I'm not saying this cause he's my boss, you know, yeah. but honestly, like, I mean, He's he's a real case study in someone who who values the people under them, you know, not just as workers and subordinates, but as as real people, as real human beings. And um, no one to him is a lost cause, right? I mean, you, you, there's there's always something to work on. There's always something that you know, even if, even if you fail, he's he's going to be there to pick you back up. And uh, you know, I've it, it's it's like. It's like it's like having a warm blanket, right? When you have that kind of person as your boss, and I've I've really picked up on a lot of those qualities, and and I'm trying to um, emulate that in my own leadership style, where it's you, you really just develop that human connection, and it it not only it provides a better quality of the relationship between you and your subordinate, but mm -hmm. I think it also it allows them to be more effective in their job, you know, mm -hmm. and and enjoy their job more. At, at least that's been my experience. So um, I think that's a really important quality of a leader. And I, I think that that has become more important in the modern era, you know, in the last 10 or 20 years. I mean, I, in academics, especially in surgery, you know, we, we hear stories about these leaders of ages past who, you know, were complete sociopaths, you know, they were, they're incredibly productive, yeah. you know, and, and incredible, incredible surgeons and, you know, researchers and whatever, but doing just, you know, things nowadays that we would consider in, insane and, you know, the way they talk to people, the way they address people, the way they would, you know, lose their temper and all that. And, um, you just can't get away with that anymore, nor, nor should you, you know? So yeah. it's, I, I think all of, all of, um, society, I, I don't know if I can make this blanket statement, but it seems like all of society's leaders, um, but especially in academics have, have moved much more to a people focused approach. And, um, if you look in our own institution, you know, the, um, uh, the, the leaders we see, uh, you know, Tom Owens, Lisa Pickett, Cynthia Shortell, I mean, all just wonderful people to talk to. You don't get those, those sociopaths as much anymore, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's definitely, I, I felt some of that shift too, even though it's, I'm probably at like the tail end, you know, the, before it was like a hierarchical sort of leadership focus where you're just doing what you're told. Um, and that was it. That was like the extent of your relationship. But now things are shifting a little bit more where it's, you know, like you said, people focused, people centric where you're understanding the other person's goals and then trying to align with that and developing that long-term relationship. Cause that's, I think ultimately, and maybe correct me if, you know, I'm interpreting it wrong, but that's what's going to be creating the most fruitful outcomes, you know, down the road. I think so. I think yeah. so. Oh. Yeah. You can probably get stuff done either way. Right. I mean, you can roll in hot with a big whip and, you know, people do what you say too, but yeah, it's a little like that. Right. Yeah. So many different, you know, types of power, types of leadership. And it's always fascinating to hear uh, people's individual strategies and approaches. Cause I don't, I don't know if there's any like right answer or wrong answer. Yeah. Um, 
Um, so very, very fascinating to explore some of that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm still very much, again, a work in progress. I mean, I'm, I'm learning all this and I, I'm, I might have much more insightful answers in five years from now, but that's what, this is what I got so far. Yeah. Well, I think uh, it's been a very, very interesting interview and I, I'm glad that we had the chance to talk and really explore your own path and your own journey. And I, I know this journey is continuing to progress and develop. And it's very exciting to, I think, at least get a snapshot of that, especially as you're trying to figure out your own role long-term and then also try to manage all these different responsibilities as a junior faculty. 